Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Church of Blue Ridge, for my part. My name is Ted, one of the pastors here. If you would turn your Bibles to Psalm 102, 102, please. I had to get another Bible out this week because two and a half years ago, I left my preaching Bible on the roof of my van and drove away from church, only to hear it thud about a block down the street, and the middle pages fell out, including Psalm 102. So I knew this day would come, and it has come. I could not use that Bible today. It's good to have you guys with us. We are in the middle of a short series through a few Psalms, looking at the different ways that uh, God calls us to pray, a healthy prayer life. And today is the, the third week, and you'll see on the screen kind of where we've been, where we're going. We still have one more week after today. We've looked at uh, confession and, and, and confession in prayer. Last week, we looked at uh, really supplication part one, praying scripture, praying, equipping prayers, using scripture. And then today, we're continuing with supplication, but it's more in terms of what we think of with supplication, uh, request, pleading with God based on our needs. In fact, uh, the definition for supplication is to plead earnestly and humbly, earnestly and humbly with someone. And that someone for us, of course, is the Lord. And then next week you'll see, uh, appropriately so, we'll get to Thanksgiving and the importance of Thanksgiving in prayer. But for us today, with Psalm 102, it's not a how to pray, okay? We all pray. We all, those of us who are Christians, know how to plead with God, to bring our request uh, before God. So it's not a how-to. That's not the point. In fact, you know, 80, 90% of, of Christians pray regularly. So we know how to pray. But today, what I want to do, what I'm hoping the Holy Spirit will do as we look at Psalm 102, is help us learn what to pray with. And that, my friends, is hope hope and certainty in our Father above. In fact, this hope that is a complete trust and dependence upon the sovereignty, immutability, or unchangeable nature of God, and God's eternal nature as well, our Father in heaven. And the fact that we have these promises in Christ that he will fulfill. That is what today is about. In fact, look at this great passage. We've looked at it several times. One of the most important passages in the New Testament on prayer. You'll notice when you look at this verse, you guys know verse six, right, of Philippians four, but you need to start with the end of verse five. They got the numbering wrong with this one. Look at this. The Lord is at hand. You almost hear the therefore there. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And look at the promise we have. This is one of those promises. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There it is. That's what it means to pray with this type of hope in our Heavenly Father. Now, a few uh, uh, context items about Psalm 102 that are very important before we jump in. First of all, the author of this psalm, most scholars believe, I believe this, that the author of this psalm was in exile. He had been taken captive from Jerusalem, and we find him now writing from exile in Babylon. So that is the context of this psalm. In fact, it's one of six psalms that were written in exile. The others, if you're interested, 42, 43, 74, 79, and 137. This is a psalm of individual lament. 
And not only for himself, but he's lamenting to God on behalf of the nation, on behalf of Jerusalem, uh, based on all that has happened uh, in recent, recent days for him from his perspective. It's also mixed. It's not just lament. It's mixed with prophetic hymn, prophetic hymn. And we'll see that as we jump in. And also the ancient church, if you're interested, just a little historical fact, the ancient church, this is one of the seven confessional psalms that they would use regularly in their worship. And in fact, if you look up at the, uh, the, the superscript up by the, the numbers 102 in your Bible, it says, a prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. So for you too, this is another model psalm like Psalm 86 last week that you can uh, implement into your life as you're going through brokenness or as a church as we're going through brokenness. This would be a good psalm uh, to use in that regard. But the one thing I want us to understand with this psalm is that despite his despair, despite the brokenness we find him in, the psalmist maintains hope in the future grace of the Lord. And that's what's important for us. That's what I mean when it comes to how we should pray. And, and there you see the title of this week's psalm, Pray as One Who Has Hope. We know how to pray, but the lesson for us is learning to pray as those who have hope, because we do. Even if all of our worst fears on earth come true, we have hope beyond our imagination. And that's the lesson we learned today. In fact, here's the big idea for us that will, will guide our outline today. As he prays to the Lord, the psalmist shows us four doctrinal truths to remember in times of circumstantial difficulty. Four theological truths. And these are great to hang our hat on, if you will. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Great God in heaven, our Savior, our Father, the Son, Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, we come before you, O Lord, and we praise you. We thank you, Lord God, just as we've been singing about in these great hymns this morning, all that we have in Christ for those of us who are your blood-bought children. We praise you that there is no circumstance on earth, no matter how horrible, that causes us to lose what we have in Christ. Our prayer today, Lord, and this is for all of us, me at the front of the line, is that as we go through brokenness, Lord, you would help us to keep our eyes fixed upon the cross and not forget, even at those moments, all that we have, all that you have done for us, all that you have given us by your grace and your mercy in Christ, in this life and especially in the next life, Lord. Strengthen us and let every one of us who are your children today leave here today praying as those who have hope, certainty, because of your promises, because of your gospel, and because of Jesus Christ. And Father, again, if there's if those in here, I don't have to say if, I know there are those in here, I'm sure of it, who do not know you, who are not born again, oh, that you would give them that gift, that you would give them that grace, that hope of salvation in Christ. Even today, Lord, harvest for your glory. It's in that precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. All right, so turn your attention to Psalm 102 as we get in. You'll see the, the, the slide will tell you the first of these four great theological truths. And this is, it is the fact that he, God, is sovereign over us, over his children. He is sovereign over us. But let me ask you a question first. Has anyone ever suffered the consequences of another's 
actions, right? Anyone ever experienced that? Maybe a sports team, someone messed up and the whole team had to run or, or, or something like that. Well, this happened to me uh, in ninth grade. I may have shared this story in the past. I can't remember, but it was ninth grade art class. And we had a substitute that day and we were working with clay. And a bunch of kids that I sat near started throwing clay at each other and the, you know, the substitute busted them. And I didn't. I was actually good that day. And, uh, but then the next day, I get called to the principal's office, and I get a referral and three days of internal suspension. Can you believe it? That was horrible. And I even went to my stepmom, and she went to bat for me, went down there, talked to the teacher, and the teacher said, yeah, that's okay. I know he's done it on other days. So I still had to serve internal suspension. And she was right. I had. I just knew not to do it when a substitute was there. So we know what it's like to suffer on behalf of the sins of the others. And I share that with you because that helps to shape the context of the psalm. This psalmist represents the faithful remnant of God's covenant people within larger Israel, or Judah, if you will. So he has suffered because of the sins of the majority in Judah that rebelled and rejected Yahweh. And as a result, the whole nation was taken into captivity, or most of them were taken into captivity uh, and we'll talk more about that as we get into the passage. But let's go ahead and read the first two verses. He cries out, he says, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. What we have here in verses one through two is a mosaic of tri- traditional liturgy. This essentially was, would be how a good Jew would dial up God. You would say these things. For me growing up, it was, uh, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. I'd say that at the beginning of every prayer with my, my parents, and then I would pray other things. So this is a liturgy, but don't mistake it for a second. This guy's not just going through the motions like I was as a kid. You can feel the earnestness of his supplicatory prayer here in this. Hear my prayer, Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide my face from you incline your ear to me, answer me speedily. You you feel it when you read that. This man is broken. And now as we get to verses three through nine, what we're going to see here are several metaphors for how he is suffering, how he is struggling in this time. Let's look at each of these really quick, beginning in verse three. He says, for my days pass away like smoke. And my bones burn like a furnace. As we go through, see how many of these you can relate with from things that you have been going through. Maybe you're going through today. Because what he's saying here in verse three, it's as if time, I've lost track of all time. Have you ever been there in such brokenness where you don't even know the days anymore? And his bones burn like a furnace. There's something internal happening to him. Uh, Jay Adams used to teach us that, uh, my counseling professor, that we are like a duplex. Everyone know what a duplex is? It's one building, but it has two halves, two homes, essentially. We simply have an inner nature and an outer nature. And when we suffer internally, there are physical consequences. When we suffer physically, there are internal consequences, because we're one. We're one. That's the point. He is struggling physically, and we see this as we continue. He says, my heart struck down like grass and and was withered. I forget to eat my bread. This man is depressed. These are words of one who is in deep despair, deeply depressed to the point where he doesn't even want to eat. He could care less about food. He's missing meals, not because he's fasting, but because he's so broken, so distraught over his circumstances. He continues, he says, because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. His missing of meals and lack of appetite is causing him to look like almost like he's anorexic. 
And here's a, uh, a quote from, uh, and by the way, when you get to go through the Psalms, one of the joys is you get to read Charles Spurgeon's uh, Treasury of David. And so we're going to have a few quotes from him uh, because there were a few on earth who could put words together like Charles Spurgeon. Look what he says here on the slide. slide. He says, as the smitten flower no longer drinks in the dew or draws upon the nutriment from the soil, so a heart packed with intense grief often refuses consolation for itself and nourishment for the bodily frame and descends at a doubly rapid rate into weakness, despondency, and dismay. Have you ever been there? Maybe you're there even this morning. That's where we find our psalmist. As he continues in verse six, he says, I am like a desert owl in the wilderness. Like an owl of the waste places, I lay awake. So uh, the word owl there, really the Hebrew word, we don't know what bird he's talking about, but the, the context makes it seem like an owl because of the wilderness. And what he says there at the beginning of verse seven, I lie awake. Owls are, are nocturnal uh, owls. Uh, they're nocturnal birds, I'm sorry. And so he's losing sleep. Right? One of the other consequences that come with such brokenness, not only are we going without food, not only are we uh, just broken beyond belief, but we're not sleeping. We're finding it hard to sleep. Uh, if you continue there in, in verse seven, he says, I am like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. He's by himself. You ever felt like that? Where you're in it alone, you're by yourself. Uh, it's reminiscent of what Elijah said at Mount Sinai when he complained to God that I'm the only one following you in all of the northern kingdom. That's how he felt. He wasn't. God would tell him that in a few moments, but he felt like it. It's just me. I'm the only one. Uh, and this is how he is. He feels like almost he's, he's the only believer. He's the only righteous member of Judah that's sitting there in captivity. And in verse nine, uh, these are words of one morning. He says, for I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. You guys have seen many times the sackcloth and ashes they would put ashes on their head. And he's mourning so much and has the ashes on his head so much that it's getting mixed with whatever food he is eating. His tears are filling his cup and mixing with his drink. This man is broken beyond all belief. But here is where he starts to have a healthy perspective. In fact, he already has it. And now he's gonna bring us in. Look at verse 10. Look where he lays the blame. Look whose feet he lays the blame at for his current circumstances? Is it Nebuchadnezzar? Is it the unfaithful Jews who rejected Yahweh for years back in Jerusalem? No, it's God himself. He says, because, talking to the Lord, because of your indignation and anger, for you, Lord, have taken me up and thrown me down. He recognized the sovereignty of God, that even in the worst of times, it was God that allowed this to happen. And he places the blame at his feet. The words here are of one who takes a piece of pottery, raises it up, and slams it to the ground. One scholar referred to this as omnipotence, omnipotent violence. Omnipotent violence. He recognizes the sovereignty of God. Now, before we move on, and we're going to come back to the sovereignty of God. I know it's negative here, right? This is a good thing. You see, we love to talk about the sovereignty of God when it comes to our salvation. We sing about it. Probably sung about it this morning at some point. But rarely do we like to consider the sovereignty of God in the worst of times. My friends, if God is sovereign, he's sovereign in the storm as well as on the day of salvation. And I say that to you, as hard as it is, that is the path of freedom. You know what Jesus says about the truth will set you free? When we recognize that God is sovereign in the storms, it's the beginning of the healing.
It's the beginning of our perspective getting from the circumstances, the horizontal, on back onto God, that He is still sovereign. God does not go to sleep. God does not take a day off. God does not take a break. In verse 8, I actually skipped it, but if you look back at it, all the days my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. That's one of the hardest parts of going through someone like, something like this, is when our enemies are saying to us, and, and the taunt basically is this, we see it elsewhere in the Old Testament, where is your God, right? Where is your God? Look at you, you've been following him, you've been faithful, and now you're here in jail or in captivity, just like the rest of us. Where is your God? And, and those circumstances are, if we don't have that strong foundation of the sovereignty of God, even in the storms, we will fall, we will stumble. I haven't talked a lot about it, maybe a few times to some of you, but Jen and I had an experience many years ago, back in 2006, where I had to resign from a church in Florida because the senior pastor was into heresy. And I'm not going to go into what. You can ask me privately. And so there I was. We had two babies. Uh, and, and by faith, it was the same day that the crocodile hunter died, Labor Day 2006. I'll never forget it. And we resigned and went through that. And the very next Sunday, my friend Mason good friend of mine. He, he was coming to the church. He decided to go back to see what the pastor would, would preach on or what he would say. And he preached Psalm 55, which is the psalm where it says, I thought you were my friend. We used to eat bread together, and now you have betrayed me. And he preached that psalm against me before all those people. And I still remember what that feels like to be taunted like that. And I did not have the good theology of the sovereignty of God back then, so it was, it was hard. But in terms of application... Another thing we need to, to look at, especially as we move forward, we all know that uh, there's brokenness in our society. We see the rhetoric towards Christianity and towards the church. And let's look at this passage. You guys know this verse really well. We have, this is the basis of the sovereignty of God on the worst days. Paul writes there, we know that for those who love God, all things, circle that, not some things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those who love God, his children, so important for us to understand and to learn to apply that doctrine, that theology to the worst of times, as well as to our salvation. So important. And then another application point here before we move on, when you suffer, and you will if you're not as a believer, when you're going through the brokenness as an individual or as a family, don't go it alone. Don't give me uh, that excuse, that line that, well, we're just private people. That, there's no place for that in the local church. When God saved you, you were designed uh, really with a deficiency intentionally, and that is the fact that you need one another. You need each other. We need uh, the others in the body of Christ in those moments. So I know pride. I, I struggle with it. You just want to go it alone and not involve others but we have to. We have to reach out and bring others into our life. There's no room for private people in the body of Christ. You will suffer and you will struggle and so will the church because your struggle, whatever God's allowing you to go through, is meant not just for you, but the entire body to suffer and go through along with you. So do not keep it to yourself. Look at this quote, another quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says, it is a great relief in times of distress to acquaint others with our trouble. 
We are eased by their hearing our lamentations, but it is the sweeter solace of all to have God himself as a sympathizer listening to our complaint. Beyond talking to your brother and sister in Christ, cry out to God. Bring it before the Lord, just like the psalmist does uh, for us. So we've seen the first of these great theological truths. We'll see the second here. He keeps his promises. We have a God who keeps and fulfills every single one of his promises towards us, his people. All right, we're going to see this not as explicit in this passage, but it is definitely, definitely implied. But before we jump in, let me ask you this question. It's cheesy, but it's the old Capital One commercial. What's in your wallet, right? Remember those commercials? What's in your wallet? Where is your hope? That's what I mean when I ask that question. I believe that Christians, and I'm one of them, in our society struggle with misplaced hope. But we don't realize it until the storm comes. We don't realize it until that brokenness becomes an issue for us. And that, my friends, is a concern. And that's something the psalm gets to the heart at. It does not let us leave this passage without asking our que- the question to ourselves. Where is my hope today? What if this happened? What if that happened? Is my hope founded on Jesus Christ and him alone? Or is it other, in other things that I don't even realize it? And circumstances will show us first and foremost. And I tell you a story, another story. And this comes from a time when I was in the Coast Guard. I don't know if I've shared this before. It was down in the Gulf of Mexico, the, the intercoastal area. And there was a sandbar there, a large permanent sandbar called Three Rooker Bar. And people like to take their boats out. And, uh, and in the summer, you'll see a lot of boats and people are on it, um, hanging out on the island, having a lot of fun. Well, this was January. And a couple decided to go out there. I think they were from Canada. So it was like a spring or summer day for them. And they go out to Three Rooker Bar. And the gentleman did not put his anchor all the way up in the middle of the sandbar where the land was permanent, where there was grass and shrubbery and rock. He put it kind of on the beach, even though there was no water there. And he and his wife hung out. Well, of course, the tide came in. And he had his anchor set in the shifting sands of the beach. And as water came up and hit where that anchor was, eventually all the uh, sand that his anchor was lodged in dissolved. Next thing I know, they turn around and his boat is drifting off. So he decides, well, it's just a, you know, 100 feet off. I will swim out to it. Being that it was January, the Gulf of Mexico was 62 degrees. That doesn't sound cold, but it is very cold. And he swam out, and he never came back. His wife watched him drown, and the boat kept going. And I, that was one of the hardest things. I, we actually had to go to the sandbar this is why I think I remember it, because I had to jump in the water, and that 62-degree water went right to my bones. And we had to take this brand-new widow and put her on our boat and bring her back to land. And I use that illustration for two reasons. One, where is your hope? Is it in the shifting sands of circumstance that could change at any moment? Or is it in the rock of Jesus Christ? the rock of Jesus Christ. Second reason I use that illustration, because for that lady, as for us on any day, our circumstances, our life can change in one moment. In one moment, she became a widow, and her life changed forever. So let's now go and see some positive things from this great passage, because now that the psalmist has considered the sovereignty of God, even in the storm, let's see what he has to say now. Back at verse 11, we're going to pick up 
And we're going to see this God who keeps his promises. You'll see here in verse 11 that he briefly returns to his circumstances, to his lament. But he does so to set up a contrast. And that's where our hope is. He sets up a contrast with his horizontal circumstances and the glory and sovereignty of God. Look at verse 11. He says, My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. Here it comes. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. You will arise and have pity on Zion or Jerusalem. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come for your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of earth will fear your glory. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. We'll stop there. But you come back and you see that beautiful contrast. This, you see this in most psalms of lament where you go from that very depressing horizontal reality to what is true and the gospel truth, if you will, for the individual. But regardless of my circumstances, regardless of this is the worst conceivable moment in my life, you, O oh Lord, are sitting on your throne. And that has not changed. And you see what he says here in verse 12. He says, you are remembered throughout all generations. How do we remember God throughout all generations? But his promises, but his word that we have here that he has providentially uh, inspired, but also uh, preserved for us so that we're sitting here thousands of years after this was written, thousands of years after this day in the life of one of our brothers in Christ. Again, Old Covenant, New Covenant. But nonetheless, in that, that moment frozen in time of his circumstance and what he was going through. And then you'll see here, where does this confidence come from? Look at verse 13, verse 14. He says, you will arise, you will. There is a future for Jerusalem, for Zion. Of course, that's what Zion means. Why does he know this? Why does the psalmist believe this so much? And the reason is because of the promises that God gave earlier in scripture. I'm not sure if you know the historical background to the Babylonian exile, but there was a number given by the mouth of Jeremiah. If you read Jeremiah, that's the, the best prophet to read right before the exile happened. You see just how bad it was in Jerusalem. There weren't many people like this who were actually believers in Yahweh. Most everybody was lost. And they were acting evil. They were worshiping false gods. Jeremiah, his entire ministry was open-air preaching. He even preached outside the temple. Can you imagine someone preaching outside of a church building here in Greenville? Be a good thing probably for a lot of church buildings. Could you imagine that though? Jeremiah had to preach open-air outside of the temple because they weren't getting anything in. They were hearing the word of God when they came out and they hated it because they hated God. And so in there, in, in Jeremiah 25, you see the first prophecy that yes, Babylon, just like the northern, I'm sorry, Judah, just like the northern kingdom would be going into captivity, but only for 70 years. That was the promise given. 70 years, right? Uh, Daniel will repeat it in Daniel chapter nine. Now Ezekiel and Daniel, uh, the next two minor, uh, major prophets, they actually prophesied from Babylon. Daniel was up in the palace. Ezekiel was down with the people wherever they lived, in the ghetto, if you will, in the in the Judah village. I don't know uh, what it was called, but Ezekiel was down there. And what's really interesting is there were three deportations, three deportations 
of Jews from Judah before Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the city and the temple. And Ezekiel and Daniel, they went on one of the early ones, probably our psalmist here too. And so if you look at the first half of Ezekiel, he's trying to convince the people that, hey, we're going to be here a while. Plant gardens, right? Settled in, settle in. And they wouldn't believe him. They thought they'd be going back soon. He's like, no, you don't understand. Uh, the temple's going to be destroyed. He even built a, in chapter four, he built a model of the temple in the city, and then he wiped it out to try to show them this is what's going to happen. And then Ezekiel 24, that's when you see the temple destroyed. Actually, Ezekiel's wife died that same day. Uh, and you can read about it. It's incredible. But that's the historical background of all of this, right? And then several of the prophets, Isaiah and Micah, and, and uh, so many of them prophesied that God would rebuild Jerusalem. So there's so many promises in so many different books of the Old Testament, which is amazing if you think about it, all saying the same thing. And that's why the psalmist prays here with such hope, such hope in God's sovereignty to keep his promises. You will keep your promises. You will have pity on Zion. In fact, look at this passage. This comes from Jeremiah chapter 29. What's really funny is verse 11, you know well, because it's like the official high school college graduation verse here in America. It's on so many cards and and probably quoted in every graduation Sunday and every Baptist church in the month of May. But you see, we take it out of its context, which is so dangerous to do. Here we see it in its glorious context. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, talking to his people, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. That's Jerusalem. And here it is. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. This was written prior to our psalm today. So he knew this promise, and we see him standing upon the promises of God. Beautiful. Uh, We'll continue the section real quickly. Look at verse 18. He says, and I love this, let this, his psalm, his prayer, his frozen moment of worship in time, let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. That's you and I right now. Now, that's, we're not the, what he had in mind. He had in mind those who are brought back to Jerusalem from exile. But here we are, the people of God. When this was written, we were not created. And now here we are sitting together, hopefully in your hearts, and later in song, praising God because he keeps his promises. The question is, would this be fulfilled? Yes, and you can read it. Psalm 147, write that down, is the corresponding psalm to this. That was written after they return to Jerusalem. They're praising God on that end for keeping his promises. Beautiful. It's amazing how all these ancient documents written by different people at different times come together so perfectly. Seamlessly. Seamlessly. Our, our culture hates it. It's the most amazing group of ancient documents. Beautiful. All right, verses 19 to the end, to 22. And here's what he wanted to be written so that they could look down, so that he looked down from his holy height from heaven. The Lord looked to the earth to hear the groans of his prisoners to set free those who were doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise when people gather together in kingdoms to worship the Lord. A couple things, verses 19 through 20, that's Exodus language. That's reminiscent of the cries of the people from Egypt during the Exodus. And as you may know, 
the, the return from Babylon to Jerusalem is considered a second exodus, one of the big themes in the Old Testament. It's a second exodus. But look at 21 and 22. His prayer and his hope as he's imagining, knowing he probably wouldn't be one of those people. But, but those who would come back to Jerusalem from this place that he's in right now would worship God again in Jerusalem Implied there is in front of the temple, and my friends, that day came. And you can also read about that today in the Old Testament, Nehemiah's chapter 8 through 10. Nehemiah chapter 8 through 10. That is the worship service that Ezra and Nehemiah lead to praise God for all that he did in bringing back that group from captivity. Again, you can read Ezra and Nehemiah is where that happens. Also, you can read um, Hosea. Uh, Zechariah and Malachi. Those are the three prophets on that side of the exile. It's incredible. It is incredible. God fulfills his promises. So a few application points uh, here for us in this. First of all, uh, one of the theologians I read said this. He said, the, the purpose of the psalmist here is to set ablaze the fire of hope in the promises of the Lord within the hearts of the godly. I love that. And my prayer for you today and myself is that our hearts will be set ablaze in the same way, that God fulfills all his promises to us. Here we see the second contrast. We're going to see three contrasts of, again, horizontal circumstances, but God. This is what's true for us who are his children. And as we look to ourselves here as the church, we have to ask ourselves, what promises do we have in Scripture that are yet to be fulfilled? Promises that we need to hang our hat on. And there's two big ones, the fulfillment of the Great Commission. God will fulfill the rescue mission of his covenant children. That will happen. The question for the church today, will we join him in that or not? All right? He's going to fulfill it with or without us. Do we want to be obedient and be part of that great promise fulfilling? As, I mean, think about it. Today, how many new brothers and sisters in Christ do we have around the globe today? As the gospel has been preached from, from the uh, eastern side of Asia, right here to North and South America, and even beyond. Think about that. Let us be part of that promise fulfilling. And then, of course, secondly, the great promise we think about all the time is the second coming of Jesus Christ. He said he's coming back for us. You can read about that in John 14. He's coming back for us, friends. He is coming back to take us home. And if that's the only promise we have to cling on, then that's worth clinging on because that is truth. And that is so encouraging for us. In a couple of weeks, we're going to start our Advent series. It's a celebration of the first coming. But anytime we celebrate Christmas and the first coming of our Savior, let us look to the heavens and anticipate the second advent, the second coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I ask you, as we end this second, the second of three points, where is your hope? We started with that question at the beginning of this part of the sermon. Where is your hope? Is your hope in the stock market? Is your hope in your current possessions? Is your hope in your status or your job? Where is your hope, Christian? If you're anything like me, some days I forget to put my hope in Christ and I have it in something of this life. But when that brokenness comes, when the storm comes, all things are tested and the truth arises to see where our hope was. And it's going to be hard no matter what. But if our hope is not in Christ and Christ alone, we will fall hard. We will fall 
hard. Look at this great passage from Matthew 7, the end of the Sermon on the Mount. You know it well. Jesus says, everyone then who hears these words of mine, the promises of God, and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And you know the next part of that passage. There was someone else, a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The same storm came, but because his house was built on the sand, great was its fall. So if your, your life as a Christian, your family's life is a house, metaphorically, today, what is it built on? Is it really built on Christ? Or do you, like that poor man on the sandbar, have his anchor in the shifting sand of circumstances? Test that out today. How do we do that? Ask yourself questions. Imagine what would happen if this went away, or I lost this, or this was taken from me. Can you even imagine putting yourself in the shoes, I can't, by the way, of this man who wrote this? He was going about his life, and then an army came, took him captive, took him away from his native land to some desert out in the middle of the wilderness, and now he's in servitude to a foreign king. Can you imagine uh, the African slaves that were sold by their own people to European slave traders, put on a boat, and brought to all parts of the West? Can you even imagine? I can't. And if that day comes for us, where is our hope? Where is our gaze? Because, friends, we have something so incredible, if you're in Christ, that you have been given and that is Christ himself and all the promises that are yet to come for us. All the promises. Now, lastly, before we go to our final very quick section here at the end, you can't be strengthened by the promises of God if you're not reading them regularly. I said earlier like 80 or 90% of Christians pray regularly. Only year after year when they do these surveys, only about a third of Christ followers are reading the word of God on a regular basis. This is what we've been given to, to live on. This is the bread that God gives his children. We're not legalists here, but, but I, would, I would be hating you if I didn't continually encourage you, be in the word, get in the word every single day. It's how our hope is strengthened in the promises of God by feasting upon his word, feasting upon his word. All right, the third and fourth of these theological truths, we've seen the first two. Now we're gonna see the the last two and we're gonna see them together because they're in this final section of Psalm 102. And that is this, that God is unchanging and God is eternal. God is unchanging and God is eternal. And these two are so important when it comes to our hope and placing our hope in God. Raise your hand if you like change. Who loves change? I'm not talking about the kind you get from the cash register. I'm talking about people messing with your life and changing things up on you all the time. Some people do, but most of us do not like change. Think about this. Almost every one of us in the room 12 months ago were in a different church situation. And look at all the change that has happened to all of us, and it was not all fun. But praise God that we're sitting here right now as one family of Jesus Christ. Change is actually really good for us. We don't like it. We fight against it. But change keeps us dependent upon God, keeps us dependent upon God. And and this is one great thing, though, is when we go through the changing, shifting circumstances of time and life, we have an unchanging God, an immutable God. He does not change. He is constantly 
the same. And that's what we're going to see here, as well as the fact that he is eternal without decay. Let's read, uh, picking back up in verse 23. You'll see in 23, once again, he returns to his lament very briefly. Again, just to set up that contrast between his circumstances and the truth of God. He says, he has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. Essentially, he's saying, God, you broke in in the prime of my life when I should be doing this, this, and this, and everything now has changed. I swim laps for exercise, and I swim at the... uh, the Greenville County Rec Pool, which is an Olympic pool. Thankfully, it's, they, they have the lane lines going, the width, so it's only a 25-yard swim. So every 25 yards, you hit the wall, you get a little bit of a break. Sometimes when they're having a tournament, even for people like me, they turn it the long ways, and it's 50 meters, like over half of a football field. And it's a, the whole pool's a deep end, by the way. So you're out there in the middle, you're like, where is that wall? You know, you just, and, and that's how you feel. Like, am I going to make it, or am I going to drown right here in the middle In fact, when you get to one side, you really have to think, do I have what it takes to get back over there or do I need a break? And that's what I thought about with verse 23 because in in the middle of his course, in the middle of, in the prime of his life, all these circumstances happen to him where he's taken into captivity. And so he reminds us of that. But look what he says in verse 24. And it, it sounds almost like Paul. Oh my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout all generations. He's saying the God who doesn't change, the God who is eternal, let me not die. He's, in his mind, he's facing death here. He wants to finish the race, just like Paul tells us all the time. He wants to finish the course. Put me back in that pool. Let me finish the race you have given me. And here's where we continue. Look at verses 25 and 26. He says, oh Of old, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away, but you are the same, and your years have no end. Look what the psalmist does here. He bookends all of human history. He goes all to show God's unchanging nature, to show God's eternal nature. He goes back to creation. Because right? God has no beginning, but he was there in the beginning creating. And then he goes all the way to the end of time. Again, the Old Testament hope of the faithful Jew was also the resurrection, that there was a new heavens and a new earth. And right there you see it. You see a prophecy of the destruction of the current heaven and earth, but also a prophecy that God will change it and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth, a future hope. And if we go back to the last section, you know, the restoration of Jerusalem is one thing. Now he's swinging for the fences. He's going for the end of time when God will come back and set up his new heavens and his new earth for his children. And he can do that. Why? Because he's eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. And he also is outside of time and he does not change. So in the midst of our circumstances, we have a God who is constantly, he is our rock. And we need to put our anchor of hope in the unchanging and eternal God for those of us who are always experiencing change and we will decay, we will die unlike our God. So this is a great encouragement for us. Look at this passage on the screen from Hebrews 13. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And he is our rock in the midst of the storm. Final verse there. This is the conclusion of this great Psalm. And again, it's a, it's a, it's a declaration of hope 
because he knows that God's going to do all this, and therefore he knows the children of the faithful will be secure. Look what he says. The children of your servants, referring again to the faithful remnant within Israel, the children of your servants shall dwell secure. They have a future, right? I might be here, but I know, God, you're going to restore us to our land. You're going to restore to us our kingdom. This too will pass to the extent that our children have a hope. They will dwell secure. The offspring shall be established before you. He ends with that confident declaration of faith that God will take care of our children. That's incredible because I don't trust anybody with my children, right? He's trusting God with the children of the faithful. A few more application points for us. First and foremost, to sum up this entire passage in terms of those of us who should pray with hope, listen to these words from 1 Thessalonians 4. But we do not, Paul's writing, he says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who have, who have died, those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, though Jesus God will bring, though, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the voice of an archangel and, will, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then those of us who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And look what he says at the end. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And I encourage you, and let's encourage each other, that regardless of what storm we happen to find ourselves in, as families and even as a church, God has a future hope for us. And it's on those days, like the psalmist, we need to find ourselves clinging to the promises of God, the sovereign God who loves us, who has saved us, who doesn't change and has no beginning and no end because he loves us. Here's a, fo- a final quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says, happy will be the day when all the nations shall unite in the soul worship of Yahweh. Then shall the histories of the older times be read with adoring wonder And the hand of the Lord shall be seen as having rested upon the sacramental host of his elect. We have a future regardless of what we face in the presence. And so I end our time together with this. I've asked it before. I'll ask it one more time. Where is your hope, Christian? Where is your hope? Is it in the rock of Christ or the shifting sand of circumstance? I'm going to go ahead and invite the band to come back up as... We have one last song to sing together as we continue to worship. And my prayer is that you will respond to what God has taught you and spoken to you and shown you this morning. But also, I want to address those of you who don't know Christ or you have doubts about that because you have no hope right now. You have no rock to put your anchor in. All you have is the shifting sand that leads to eternal destruction. And we're here first and foremost to share that gospel and to provide an opportunity for you to come and talk to someone. And so we don't have the formal invitation time where people come up front and all that, but this is the invitation. Today, tomorrow, the rest of the week, myself, Robert, Daniel, we are available to you. 
We will set everything else aside to have that conversation. Even this morning, come and track us down. We want to share Christ with you. Where is your hope today? Let's pray again. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for this word. Thank you for this servant of yours who was able to overcome the crippling physical effects of depression and despair to write and pray this prayer to you. Thank you for the gift of faith and hope you gave him in that moment. One of, one of the darkest days for the people of God when there was just a remnant of, of but a few thousand. Oh, Lord, thank you that you have preserved this psalm along with the rest of your holy word so that we could be encouraged by those who have gone before us. Let us dive into your word. Let us read the continual theme of promise and fulfillment, promise and fulfillment, and even hang our hats and our hearts upon the promises that you are yet to fulfill. We know, Lord God, you will fulfill your great commission. We know the gospel will go to every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and let the Church of Blue Ridge be an obedient part of that. Let us get off the sidelines and fulfill that promise with you. And, oh, Lord God, we look forward to the day, if we should be so blessed to be alive, when you will part the heavens and return. We pray for the church in that day, whoever is here, because it will be a glorious day. We anticipate, we look forward to it, and we thank you above all else that you are the God who keeps his promises, the God of steadfast love to his children. Be with us now as we continue to worship and as we go about our day. We love you so much, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.